Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right, our scripture reading for today is uh, from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 13. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and him in, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The grass withers and the flower fades. Good morning. <laughs> Kids, you're welcome to, to flee the room. Uh, Elevate and EGC this morning, I believe. So for those of you that I haven't met before, my name is Joel. I'm one of the elders, and this is the end. We're finally to the end of our study in Colossians, and you're finally to the end of hearing me preach for three weeks. So... Trey will be back. Trey, I formally rescind my uh, application for lead pastor here, and I don't ever want to do this again. (laughs) Anyway, so for the past three weeks, we've been going through and we've been looking at this passage in Colossians every week, rolling over it again, mining it for new ideas, new truths about who God is and what he is doing in this world. And this morning, we're going to jump back into the same passage and continue to look at what God is trying to communicate to us. As I said from the very beginning, our goal in looking at this passage is to see who is the king of this kingdom, what is his kingdom like, and now what are we called to as part of this kingdom? And this is all part of a lead-in as we move back toward the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus in declaring the kingdom, shows us what it's like to live in that kingdom. So this morning, as we go through, as we're thinking through this passage, I really want you to be thinking about these two questions. The first one, what is the goal or the purpose of this kingdom that is outlined here? And then what are we, as members of the kingdom, to do in response? So those are the two questions to have lingering in your mind this morning. So let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you are good and gracious to us, a wayward and rebellious people. 
I thank you that you have sent your son Jesus into this world in the flesh to live, to die, and to rise again on our behalf. And I pray that this morning as we look and see who King Jesus is and what his kingdom is, and as we see the fullness of the redemption that he has brought, I pray that our hearts will be drawn to love you more. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So on January 5th, 1066, King Edward of England dies. And there's a whole bunch of controversy that arises on who should be the next king. There's multiple claimants to the throne. But on the very next day, Harold Godwin's son was crowned King of England. But there are a number of parties that were not quite happy about this arrangement. So later on that year, on the 28th of September, one of the claimants decides to press his claim. And on that day, a great fleet of ships lands in Pevensey, England. They cross the English Channel and they began the Norman invasion of England. Now, King Harold, who's been king for less than a year, is already up in the northern part of the kingdom trying to protect his realm because another claimant was trying to invade from, from Norway. And so King Harold quickly marches his entire army all the way down to the southern portion of the kingdom and prepares for battle. And at 9 a.m., October 14th of that year, a huge battle ensues, and it lasts the entire day. It's long, it's bloody, the forces go back and forth, back and forth, and then by the end of the day, the Norman invading army is victorious. King Harold lies dead on the battlefield. The war was won. A decisive victory was made. And yet, the English people said, we're not going to submit. And so instead of submitting to the Norman invasion and to this king, who probably had the rightful claim to the throne, they decided to rebel, install a new king and tried to continue to oppose this Norman invasion. But this conqueror, he would have none of it. Swept all of these rebels aside, people ran into exile, and on Christmas Day of that same year, 1066, William was crowned King of England in Westminster Abbey. And King William of England, better known as William the Conqueror, took his place as the rightful ruler of all of England. Those who accepted his rule experienced the goodness of his reign. If they submitted to his kingship, even if they were rebels, he, will, he allowed them to keep their positions, their titles, their lands. But anyone who rebelled against him to the end, he decisively ended their rebellion. They were beheaded or killed. I feel like this picture of an invasion of a kingdom is a good picture of what it means when we see King Jesus claiming victory over an imposing kingdom. This morning as we walk through our passage, we're going to see that Jesus has decisively declared victory over the opposing kingdom of darkness. And his victory wipes away all rebellion. And so right now, 
in this world, while the domain of darkness continues to rebel for a time, it will one day meet a full and final end when King Jesus brings peace, shalom, to all of creation. That's the goal of Jesus' kingdom. It's total peace over all creation. And that's what we're part of now in this kingdom is we're starting to see the elements of this peace go forward. And to be pro- we're called to be proclaimers of this peace as well. So before we jump into the specific portion of the passage that we're going to look at this morning, let's take a moment and remember what all we've talked about in this passage so far. What all has Paul told us about these really mind-blowing truths? So in verses 15 and 16, he draws us all the way back to when God created all things. The language here really matches up with Genesis, where we see God creating everything. In the picture in Genesis, we have God going through, creating light and dark, creating the sky above, the seas below, creating the earth, the land, and then going through and filling those various domains with the rulers of those domains. This picture of God creating everything, and then on the sixth day, at the very end, he creates something in his own image, humankind, as his stewards to rule and reign with his authority. And then we get this picture on the seventh day of of the God King sitting down in his cosmic temple. He's completed his work of creation. He's resting from creating, but he's sitting down to rule and to reign over all of creation as his kingdom. This is the picture that we get not only in Genesis, but that Paul is trying to hearken us back to here as he's using this same language in verses 15 and 16. And then in verse 17, Paul goes on to talk about how Jesus is not only this God King, this creator in the flesh, but he's also the one who holds all honor and prestige. As the firstborn, he's supposed to be ruling and reigning over the entire household, over the entire kingdom, governing wisely over all that he has made. And then in verse 18, though he created all things, Jesus' kingdom is now active in a specific way in the lives of his kingdom subjects, in the hearts and lives of those of us who are part of his people, the church. He leads us like the head leads the rest of the body. And this is all because he died and rose again from the dead. As verses 13 and 14 show, to deliver us from this domain of darkness, from this rebellion, and redeeming us, forgiving us, transferring us into his own kingdom. So this morning, we're going to focus in on verses 19 through 23, the end of this passage. And so remember, keep these two questions in mind. What is the goal or purpose of Jesus' kingdom, and how are we to respond to this king? So let me read this again for us. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you... Who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So if you remember back... As Tiffany opened us, start of our time together, she mentioned that we retell the same story 
every single week. It's a story of four parts of God creating all things, of us humankind rebelling against his good authority, of God redeeming or buying us back from our rebellion, and then God going through and restoring all things one day. We see elements of this, of each part of the story in this passage. Jesus is God. He's created all things. He sustains all things. But a domain of darkness was set up and opposed to Jesus' rule. It was the rebellion of his creation, of which we were part. But Jesus has delivered us from this domain of darkness. He has, through his own blood, redeemed us from slavery. What Jesus has started, he will one day fully accomplish. One day he's going to bring total peace to creation, restoring creation to the right relationship that it's supposed to have with he himself as the king. The goal of Jesus' work, the goal of everything that he's doing is to reestablish his kingdom over all creation to bring peace through the blood of his cross, through his reconciling work, bringing peace through his rule and his reign. This phrase in verse 20, making peace by the blood of his cross, has undertones of the original created goodness in it. Just like we see over and over again as we go back to Genesis chapter 1, we see the goodness of how God has created all things. In Hebrew, the term peace is shalom, but it means more than just a cessation of hostilities. It really means that everything is as it should be. There's completeness, there's wholeness. Back in Genesis, when the creator, God, king, finished creating all things, he declared everything, every single part of it, very good. And then he rested. His rule and his reign is over everything as it should be, complete, whole, and good. In his cosmic kingdom that he created, there was no rebellion to start off with. Everything was as it was supposed to be, complete peace, complete shalom, wholeness to creation, each part working in concert with one another, working for the good of everything that the creator king had made. This is the picture that we have of what peace looks like. And I don't know about you, but I find this picture of peace very compelling. Think about it. If there was no rebellion against God, God's created order, all the rebellion that we see throughout creation would no longer be here. Our bodies would no longer rebel against us. There would be no sickness and death. Cancer would be gone. Heart disease would be nowhere. There would be no birth defects, no chromosomal disorders, nothing. Complete peace in our bodies. We also wouldn't rebel or hurt one another. There would be no broken relationships, no fathers abandoning their families, no children rebelling against their parents, no shouted words that bring 20 or 30 or 40 years of estrangement, no breaking of trust between friends through gossip, none of it, complete peace. Society wouldn't rebel against us. There would be plenty of work for everyone, everywhere, 
And the value and dignity and importance of that work would be whole. Everything would be righteous and equitable in our society. All systems would be impartial and fair. And the fruits of our work would go to everyone who has need. No one would lack for food or clothing or shelter. Our emotions wouldn't rebel against us, leading us to unrighteous anger, yelling at our kids or spouse over trivial things, or erupting in a work meeting because someone said something that triggered you. Prideful superiority would be nowhere. We would humbly see God as the source and sustainer. We would see ourselves in our rightful place before him. And this would remove all pride and arrogance that we might feel toward other people. And the world wouldn't rebel against us. Tornadoes wouldn't rip through towns. Hurricanes wouldn't destroy cities. Volcanoes wouldn't, in, wouldn't shower entire regions in ash and dust and rock. And ultimately... There would be no rebellion against God. We would see him and hold him as the priceless and good king that he is, whose loving character and picture of true goodness makes our hearts sing. We would live in right relationship to him and to his commands. Shalom, completeness, wholeness, goodness, peace. This is the peace that God intended at the beginning of creation and that one day King Jesus' kingdom will finally bring in totality. It's a peace that's brought by full and final reconciliation. But what does Paul mean here when he says the term or when he uses the term reconciliation? How are we supposed to read this? Because as I read this, especially in light of the rest of Scripture, it seems a little strange. So in our passage this morning, Paul uses the term reconcile two different times. The first time in verse 19, that he will reconcile to himself all things. And then in verse 22, he goes on to say, you, us, rebellious people, are reconciled in Jesus' body of flesh by his death. If we read both of these and we think the exact same thing, we might read this passage incorrectly. And obviously, context is always king as we're reading, and so we need to think rightly about what Paul is trying to communicate here. So there's, there's something we haven't really talked about a whole lot in going through this passage, specifically verses 15 through 20, but Paul is using a poetic uh, literary way of writing called a chiasm to, talk, to utilize various components and compare and contrast them to one another. We're not going to dive into that. Don't worry. You don't have to go through an English class this morning. But what Paul is doing is he's using these various structures to try and show us the greatness of what God is doing and how they are similar to one another. For instance, Paul talks about the original creation of all things. And then in the second half, he uses the new creation as the picture of the work that is going on. In the, in the first half, he talks about Jesus being firstborn of all creation, not being created, but having preeminence over all things. In the second half, he talks about Jesus being firstborn from the dead, being preeminent over all the new creation once again. Paul does this over and over and over again in how he structures this specific passage. 
And it's important for us to understand that the first portion of this passage is dealing with the totality of all created things. The second portion of this passage is actually pointing and talking to the new creation, the recreation, the restoration of creation. And so there's a, there's a slight difference here in what we see Paul talking about here. I want you to keep that in mind as we're going through because this passage can be somewhat tricky when we talk about these aspects of reconciliation. So going back and thinking through holistically what we've seen and walked through so far, at the very beginning in verse 13, we know that there is a domain of darkness, a kingdom that is opposed to King Jesus. So when Paul uses this term reconcile, the first time he uses it, what does he mean? Does he mean that everything that has been in rebellion to God will one day be reconciled to him? That seems like what he's trying to say here. But we also know as we read other passages that that doesn't really match what Paul himself has said. So for instance, if we skip a little ways down, this is in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I don't know about you, but the wrath of God coming does not match what I think of when I hear reconciliation. It seems like there's a difference going on here. What Paul is communicating is that God is not going to let the domain of darkness off the hook. Those who remain in the domain of darkness will experience his righteous wrath. Those in rebellion to King Jesus will experience God's wrath. Even Jesus speaks of this when he talks about his second coming. So this is from Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, and I'm going to jump around a little bit in there. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Jesus speaking, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Picture of the new creation, King Jesus coming. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For you lived, paraphrasing, as kingdom people. Then skipping down in verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For you lived as those in the domain of darkness. Once again, paraphrasing there. And then verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. King Jesus' own words here show that the totality of what we think of when we read all things don't seem to be reconciled to him. What are we supposed to do with this passage? How are we supposed to read verse 20, verse 20 here? To reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's tough. 
We're in one of those conundrum passages. What do we mean when we say all things? I find it's noteworthy here that Paul talks about this same picture in another one of his letters. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul is going through and showing this picture of King Jesus once again. Um, but I want you to listen very closely for the realms that he names. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has, exalted, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is another passage where Paul writes, proclaiming the excellencies of King Jesus. But in this picture that Paul paints for the Philippian church, of the end of the age, of Jesus returning, of the conquering king coming and setting all things right, we see a different picture. We see a picture of everyone, all things, at, the, at hearing his name, bowing their knee in submission to his authority and his power. I think it's, it's interesting here in this passage that Paul notes heaven, earth, under the earth. But in our passage, Paul only talks about heaven and earth, reconciling all things in heaven and on earth. We know at the end of the age, when all things are restored, all things in heaven and earth will be reconciled to Jesus. But it seems like this third realm is a realm of God's wrath. Jesus calls it eternal punishment, Paul calls it under the earth. It seems like there is no reconciliation there. That those, be, that those beings that have been conquered by King Jesus because they have rebelled to the end will be subject to his wrath because of that rebellion. Because of their participation in the domain of darkness and not repenting and turning to King Jesus. So as we read our passage it seems like Paul is purposely leaving out a realm in his discussion of the reconciliation of all things. For those of us that are in the kingdom of Jesus, those in the church, the body of Christ, God has definitively delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's why Paul says in verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus has taken our estrangement from God. He took on the punishment for our rebellion in his body by dying in our place. He has experienced the wrath of God for us. So we who are under his lordship, under his kingship, are now holy and blameless and above reproach. We are seen as righteous and good because King Jesus is righteous and good. 
This reconciliation for those of us who call King Jesus is full and it's final. Our relationship with the creator king is restored. That's what this picture of reconciliation is. But for those that remain in the domain of darkness, there is no final reconciliation. Their relationship with God is not being restored. If it's rebellion, then the consequences of that rebellion are what any of us will get. Jesus hasn't paid the debt. When we think about this passage and we think about what Jesus has done, it's crazy to me to think that he has conquered, that he has reconciled, not by power and prestige, but by his blood on the cross. It's his death that conquers the domain of darkness. It's his death that brings peace. It's his death that decisively ends rebellion. All things in, will be restored in heaven on, and on earth in the new creation because the heavens and the earth are the place where God's kingdom will reign in peace and shalom. But those who are in the domain of darkness will not experience that. That's heavy. So as members of this kingdom of Jesus, as those who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, as those who have been reconciled to King Jesus by his body of flesh and his death, as those who are presented as holy and blameless and above reproach before him, what are we supposed to do in response to this king? Paul finishes this passage by giving two ways in which we're called to respond. First, he exhorts the Colossians and us to continue in the faith, continue trusting in the hope of the gospel. This gospel, this good news, is simply that the God King Jesus, in his body of flesh by his death, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom. He has made us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But the calling is to continue in this hope, remain stable, steadfast. Don't shift away from it. Trust what Jesus has accomplished. We enter into the kingdom, and then it would be foolish for us to think that somehow we stay in the kingdom by other means. Yes, we're called to live rightly in this kingdom, but our hope is still in the gospel, the good news, Jesus' death for us. We remain in the kingdom in the same way we entered through the king's death for us. We're called, don't shift from this hope. It is the one and only hope. And the second thing that Paul calls us to, beyond simply hoping and trusting and continuing on in this faith, is to be as he is, a minister of this gospel. To continue to proclaim in all of creation, this good news. So that those who are still in the kingdom of darkness, those who are still in the domain of darkness, will, not, will turn to King Jesus. 
that they will hear this good news and trust that he died as well for them and enter into his kingdom. Our calling as the people of God are con- is to continue to minister, to continue to proclaim the goodness and excellency of our king. This is what our calling is as members of the kingdom. To remain stable and steadfast and to continue to proclaim the excellencies of our king. This is the picture that Paul paints of his kingdom, of Jesus' kingdom. And I find this picture incredibly compelling. That someday, King Jesus will bring complete peace and shalom. And that we, as, the peop- as his people, will experience that once again with our Creator King. My hope for you is simple. My hope for you is that you remain stable and steadfast in this hope. That you trust and continue to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus that has reconciled us to himself. And that through that, you will be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. If Jesus isn't your king, then I ask you to honestly consider the goodness of this king and his kingdom. That he lays down his life for his people. Come, continue to come back here to refuge. Continue to ask questions. Continue to think hard about these things. Continue to consider who King Jesus is. The last thing I want to encourage for all of us here at Refuge is the same thing that I've encouraged you to do for the past few weeks. Memorize Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Let Paul's description of King Jesus here be where you return when doubt arises, when questions come up, when the world rocks you. Remind yourself of who this king is. The king who has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son. I pray that, Spirit, you make this truth real in our minds, that we will return over and over and over again to this gospel, and that through your working in our lives, our hearts will remain steadfast on this hope. And I pray that, Spirit, you continue to give us voice to proclaim this good news in all creation to those that we work with, that we live with, that we go to school with, that we will tell the excellencies of King Jesus. We pray all of this in the name of our King. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.